Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nika Anani and I am your host. Here on The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy enterprises. Wealth and enterprises that would outlive their founders and continue to have sustained impact not only over space but also over time. And we explore all these themes with genuine curiosity and authenticity, inviting guests from all over the world to share their journeys, as well as to unveil their areas of expertise and teach us in an inspirational fashion, in an inspirational way. And this week, my word, Stephanie Broby. Stephanie, her name means to be crowned with victory. And honestly, I took that to be a personal affirmation for myself. (laughs) And I think it's a really powerful message also for all trailblazers, all pioneers, entrepreneurs, social impact um, oriented investors, philanthropists, disruptors, change makers. We are crowned with victory. On this episode, we explore Stephanie's journey. So Stephanie has a fascinating journey. She started off as a private wealth lawyer in the city of London and she was doing really well. She was on path to becoming a partner at her her firm but decided to leave and establish the Good Ancestor Movement and that is really a social purpose business which seeks to disrupt the wealth advisory industry by challenging traditional ideas about the economy, about excessive wealth accumulation and tax minimization. In Stephanie's world, in Stephanie's words, this is the work of repair, the work of redemption. It's about reparative and regenerative economic model that serves the planet, social well-being and community. I just loved not only her work her journey, her insight. It was just so meaty. I just loved this conversation. So I encourage you to tune in, grab a drink, really listen in, share this episode with a friend that you think would be interested in this and truly, truly soak in the wisdom that is Stephanie, she that is crowned with victory. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. This should be really good fun. So you recently launched the Good Ancestor Movement, and which really exists to disrupt the mainstream wealth advisory industry. But before we go into that, who is Stephanie and how did you get to where you are? That's such a great question. Thank you for asking. I So I always like to say I am Stephanie because my name means crowned with victory. So it's almost mm. like a declaration that mm. when I say I am Stephanie, I'm, I'm crowned with victory. Um, and I grew up in London in the United Kingdom. My parents are Ghanaian migrants and they came to the UK in the 1980s. Um, and I have three siblings and we were all born here and I was raised in a very special working class community in West London um, Mm -hmm. in Shepherd's Bush and so that's where I'm from. I now live in South London um, uh, near Brixton which is a very special place to me. Uh, Brixton is the the home of uh, resistance I like to call it Mm -hmm. um, uh, for black people in the in the UK and has a very special history and it's a wonderful place to live and so I feel very fortunate. Amazing already crowned with victory for you can you uh, explain what does that mean for Stephanie on a daily basis how do you tap into your name? Yeah it's a it's a really powerful um, tool I guess or weapon even um, Hmm. that you know, it gives me a lot of joy to, because, you know, your your name is so important to your identity. And um, so I, you know, as you can imagine, I faced a lot of challenges growing up here. And, you know, while I, I you know, had, there were many wonderful things about growing up in this incredible city, but, um, you know, obviously I was 
raised by migrant parents. Money was tight. It was mm. a struggle. Um, you know, I've dealt with racism and, uh, you know, spent a lot of my life thinking that I was in places that I didn't belong, where I didn't belong. And, um, and so I guess the stories that we tell ourselves, as well as the, the things that do happen to us and scar us and um, challenge us, um, you know, throughout all these different experiences, I've been able to hold on, particularly in recent years, just hold on to the meaning of my name, which means that, you know, I'm crowned in victory and, and um, wow. you know, whatever obstacles I might face that I can stand in, in victory that's kind of my birthright by virtue of my name. That's powerful already. And I feel like we as entrepreneurs, business owners, we constantly face challenges and having to overcome those challenges. Really on this podcast, we talk a lot about the stories we tell ourselves as well as the stories we tell others. And those stories that you're telling yourself about, I'm crowned with victory is powerful because there's often this like I know for sure I, I deal with it on a daily like I deal with it all the time and I've dealt it's the constant wrestle of the negative thoughts in your mind. Totally. So a lot, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that's incredible. And you, you mentioned that you um overcame racism, not feeling like you belonged, and also um being a daughter of migrant parents where money wasn't always abundant. Can you speak more to those challenges as well? Yeah, I mean, I, so one of my earliest memories as a child was actually being in the car with my mother. I can't have been more than, you know, four, I think. Um, and I remember a, uh, a man saying the N-word, calling my mother the N-word. Wow. And it was such a, I knew it was, some, I knew it was something that was very shocking. I, even as mm. a child, I still remember what it felt like. And then I had my own encounter with um racism at school when two girls I was friends with and we used to play together and um you know I think I think we even went to each other's houses and things but um just one day out of the blue um one of them turned around and said to me we don't want black people playing with us anymore Mm. um and I still remember the sting of that Mm. as a child and Mm. I thought looking back you know I I look back at little Stephanie and I feel so sad for her um, because you know obviously it was a horrendous thing to experience as a child but I I now remember that I hid that from my mother and it was only because I think I went to tell one of my teachers who was really kind and and warm and lovely and she must have relayed the incident to my mother at parents evening some months later and my mother had said to me why didn't you tell me and I found it so curious that even at such a young age maybe you know, five, I was protecting my parents oh. from, you know, the pain of knowing that their child was facing racism. And I find that so interesting that, you know, even as as little people, we still um, have almost the emotion and intelligence to shield our parents from pain. Um, mm. You know, it's probably very unhealthy, but I, I find mm. it really fascinating looking back. But that's certainly something that um, stayed with me for, has stayed with me for the rest of my life and um you know something like that really shapes your the way that you see yourself um yeah. both you know personally but also in the context of you know in, in a more a political context really um it was a sort of early political awakening I suppose um as to the way I saw myself in society and it made me very guarded and um mm. so yeah that was a quite a you know formative experience for me I relate so much to what you're saying. Um, I also experienced racism as a young age and my instinct was also to hide it from my parents. And I think when I reflect um, and I look back, I think a lot of it was I saw the struggle and the sacrifices they made to be first generation. Last week we had a guest that told us that immigrants, that word comes with it evokes a negative response in a lot of us and we should instead use international explorer or international entrepreneur. So, um, or expatriate or, but yeah, so, but the, I saw the sacrifices they made as expatriates and also, um, what was said and what was not said. 
And I felt a sense of responsibility that this must be worth it for them, right? And as much as possible, any issues I didn't want to trouble them with, right? Um, and because I, I saw, I, so this really, really resonates with me. Mm. And what, what you were talking about with this early political awakening, what do you mean by that? I guess, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have referred to it as an early political yeah, awakening. That's not the then. language you'd have used, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But there is this shift from um, understanding your experiences as just things that happen to you to actually seeing them through a lens of, uh, of the political. And, you know, I guess by that, I mean anything that's part of public life rather than just private life. Um, mm. And that, that points towards a political reality. Um, and so I think that was a really defining moment for me, even though it didn't start to, you know, I didn't start to connect the dots until much later. Mm. And and so you then decided to pursue a career in private wealth and you were doing very well, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I um, originally, I actually started out wanting to become a human rights lawyer. Um, and I, I didn't end up doing that in the end. And I studied law at university. I went to Cardiff University, which was a bit of a shock to the system, leaving London and all its cosmopolitan charms. And, uh, and I sort of, you know, I came back and I thought, I'm not sure I want to practice. And my main, uh, kind of mission at that time was to go to South America and to go traveling, which I did. Um, on my own age 22 <laughs> my poor mother um, was just <laughs> a wreck but anyway I ended up um, being offered a training contract at a, a firm in the city mm. in London and you know it was too good an opportunity to pass up and it was it was a great firm and they were lovely people so I ended up training um, and uh, you know spent time in four different departments um, corporate dispute resolution, uh, private wealth, and then um, employment. And I was just so drawn to private wealth, which at the time felt like a bit of a felt like a bit of a joke because I'd grown up with you know very little proximity mm. to wealth. You know, quite apart from the the wealth that you know one encounters in in London on a day to day basis. But you know, I I didn't know what like bonds and equities where I didn't know what trusts were right you know apart from you know studying trust at you know equity and trust at university I had no lived experience of wealth and many people in the industry do um, mm. but I was really captivated by the complexity of human relationships um, that private wealth kind of offered you know it's a, a really interesting balance of real sort of you know building really intimate relationships with clients mm. um, and dealing with quite complicated academic um, challenges and kind of it really appealed to my intellectual curiosity but also appealed to my pastoral nature so I was able to spend kind of a decade looking after individuals and families often who were going through some really challenging times personally um, mm and um, to support them with succession planning or perhaps if someone had died wrapping up um, a loved one's estate or giving advice on setting up trusts and a variety of things um, concerning their personal you know personal wealth and affairs so it was really really fascinating but um, I had an itch that I (laughs) needed to scratch which took me on a different path yeah, tell us more about that because you, um, I learned that you were on path to becoming a partner, right? Yeah. And it was at that point you made a decision to launch the Good Ancestor Movement. Tell us more. What, I guess, the push and pull factors? Why, why then? Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, obviously my, uh, in my early uh, years when I was 16, I wanted to become a human rights lawyer. And so I was someone that was always very passionate about justice and my mother had raised me in a in such a way that I you know was very conscious of social justice and society and community mm. and you know she she sent me down to volunteer at a soup kitchen when I was about eight <laughs> so I had to go wow. and wash the dishes with my auntie Paulette who was 
their friends um part of our community and you know because my mother wanted me to see that despite our own challenges as a family there was always someone who was worse off and you know she wanted me to see that um and it really stayed you know again that was a very formative experience and um and I was always getting into arguments with people about you know issues concerning justice and um you know the death penalty and you know all sorts of things and um you know although I I ended up qualifying into private wealth there was always something that was desiring you know had a real thirst for social justice Mm. so I ended up kind of joining a philanthropic community uh, called the Funding Network and, you know, finding different ways to try and satisfy this desire to participate in social justice projects and, you know, social change. And I sat on a couple of boards and I, you know, I was really on an amazing career trajectory and had, you know, my whole future ahead of me. I was on track to becoming a partner and, you know, would have had a very kind of, uh, you know, wonderful career prospects and financial stability, but there was just something much deeper that was missing. And I spent a lot of time interrogating what purpose looked like in my life. And I knew that I had to pursue um, my, you know, a greater sense of purpose and that that would guide me to the next step. Um, mm-hmm. And so I ended up kind of following my curiosities, having coaching and trying to work out how I could marry my interest you know in social justice and kind of which ended up translating itself into how do I support people to use their wealth and capital in a way that's going to serve the planet and to serve the interests of communities and individuals and particularly those who have been traditionally disenfranchised and excluded from society and the economy um and it, it took a few years um, to, to kind of work out sort of where I wanted to go. And then, you know, it, it wasn't until, you know, a good few years actually um, after the beginning of that kind of soul searching journey, I suppose you would call it, um, that I began to develop this vision for uh, a new way to support people with the stewardship of their wealth that was very much anchored in their values and the integration of those values across the entire stewardship of their wealth and not just their philanthropy, which is often what happens that the values piece gets forgotten and it's not very holistic and it it becomes something that's talked about maybe in the context of a family constitution or a Mm. philanthropic foundation, but never a kind of integrated sense of who am I, what am I, what are the values that I espouse what do I believe about the world and society and justice and how does that manifest itself um, in my being in the way that I um, steward my wealth and so that's what I went after. Wow Stephanie Um, what I love about what you've just said is you didn't just give us the outcome of I launched Good Ancestor Project or whatever and you know um, you gave us the truth about the vision is a process in itself Um, the vision usually doesn't just come to you overnight the vision is you said you went on like a soul searching journey right Um, and quite often um, folks think that this is just a microwave process it's it's not it's it's it takes a long time for you to get very clear about okay what is it that I want to do and then it takes some time as well to then be like okay I'm gonna go ahead and do this how was that for you once you got clarity of that vision to make that jump and that leap what was that like for you yeah I'm really glad that you picked up on the point about vision because vision is something that's birthed it has to be birthed and it has to be um cultivated and so I had to create the right conditions for that vision to be birthed in my life. And so it it got to a point where I was, I felt so suffocated by living in, in London. I, you know, I, I love London. I'm obsessed with it. It's my home, but you need to, in order to stay in love with London, you've got to get out (laughs) regularly. And the place where I feel most connected to, um, you know, whatever you want to call the universe, the source of life, you know, I call them God, you know, I I feel most connected uh, when I'm by the sea or in, na- you know, in nature. So I used to escape mm-hmm. to the coast and 
just allow my mind to breathe and I'd you know rest and you know go for you know I'd just have two really good nights of, of rest and um, go for long walks by the sea and by day two I would feel rejuvenated and then I'd have you know just do this huge download into a journal all these different ideas um, and so I learned to make that a practice in my life something mm. that I'm struggling with at the moment having I was just you know, gonna ask you <laughs> yeah. question. Yeah, um, we'll get there I'm struggling with that at the moment but um, yeah so then in terms of you know it was and I really want to speak to that point about it's not a microwave thing some things just take time no matter yeah. how technologically advanced we are now no matter how quickly we can get things delivered to our doors or downloaded onto our devices vision takes time and and then it takes time to grow into it and one of the things I've been realizing recently is oh my goodness of course it took this long <laughs> of course it took this long because I had to I had to develop the character that could could really withstand this vision um, and so it was like it felt like I was pregnant for sort of 18 months you know or maybe even longer for two years carrying this vision and feeling like oh I'm so ready to birth this vision but I but I really wasn't and um, so in terms of the transition it um, yeah it was you know I was working on the idea for the good ancestor movement for you know quite a while while I was still at work you know I was developing ideas and um educating myself I, I guess and developing a bit of a political framework and analysis around the ideas that we espouse as an organization um, which are all about challenging the status quo when it comes to not just private wealth but actually the way that we have decided to organize ourselves as an economy mm. um, and our relationships to resources and to one another um, and you know that took time for those ideas to settle and to develop into a kind of um something which is still a, a working theory of change I suppose um mm. and I had to sort of prepare myself mentally um one of the things that really shifted uh my mindset was um actually on on New Year's Eve in um 2019 which feels a lifetime ago <laughs> um I was at a party and um one of my really close friends came into the party and uh, just for a bit, um, it was almost like she'd been sent to deliver a message to me. She told me two things that rocked my world forever. And um, the first thing she said was that, according to the mathematician, Dr. Nicholas Nassim Talib, the three most um, harmful addictions in life are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly paycheck. And oh my I thought, God, wow. yeah, she's been in my life. Yes. Say it again, say it again, so according to Dr. Nicholas Nassim Talib, who is a Lebanese mm -hmm. mathematician, the three most harmful addictions in life are heroin, carbohydrates and a monthly paycheck. Hmm. And I just found that so arresting because I, it was almost like a warning to me, like, don't get so caught up in, you know, the, the privilege, you know, it is a privilege to have a regular income, of course, I'm not... Um, saying it isn't but if you often when there's a vision there there is a cost to that and oh, Jesus. so you, you know there, I mean there's got to be if it's a great vision there's always got to be a cost right um and so just for me that was stepping outside of the comforts of um a, a, a job that enabled me to you know, live a certain lifestyle and have a certain level of financial security which you know when I look back, that financial security, I believe that is a, is a perception in some ways. Anyway, all of this is just a perception. 100%. But that's, that's another conversation. 100%, yeah, um, yeah. But, but in reality, I, you know, I had stability and I just, it was something that made me so mindful of, you know, don't get so caught up in the day-to-day -day trappings of a monthly paycheck because it isn't, it, it, it can be addictive. And I could have chosen not to pursue this vision and not to kind of step out of, the wider corporate system in order to pursue um, this vision and, and dream, really, um, because I was afraid of losing, you know, regular income. Um, and then the other thing that she said to me was that there were more food banks than McDonald's in the UK. And that mm. was something that really, it was almost like, right, this is a, I've reached a point of no return. I cannot live in one of the most developed, advanced economies in the, the entire world 
and we have more food banks and branches of McDonald's. I subsequently verified the the statistics um, on a parliamentary website, and we have approximately thirteen hundred branches of McDonald's in the UK and two thousand food banks, over two thousand food banks, and that was yeah. before the pandemic. And so that really stuck in my mind as a, you know, I'm not willing to tolerate this in my lifetime. And so that's the thing that really propelled me to keep going and um, to take take the leap. But even then, you know, after the, after, you know, that date, there was still a long period of transition that mm. I had to prepare for emotionally, I suppose, um, and practically as much as po- possible. But at the end of the day, however long the transition is, there's still a moment where you have to take the leap and 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 that that comes and it was it was destabilizing for me actually it was it was um it was about eighteen months in total, and I ended up leaving my job. I handed in my notice in april uh twenty twenty one at the end of april twenty twenty one and I had a three month notice period and uh, so I left at the end of july and you know, in I had a, a beautiful ending to my time. Um, I think that's, you know, something that was really personally very important to me to finish well. And mm. um, it was a place where I'd grown up. You know, I, I interviewed uh, as a graduate when I was 21. And when I left, I was um, I was 35. So I, I really, you know, was a child of that environment or an adolescent, you know. Um, and I did a lot of growing up there. And I had some incredible relationships with, um, my colleagues I still enjoy today and clients as well so I wanted to finish well that was important to me um, and then I was found myself in August kind of this time of you know part sort of celebration and promised land and part wilderness and um, you know uh, it was it was very strange and that's when actually I started to feel the effects of oh my goodness what have I done what have I done? What have I stepped into? Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, thankfully I had the entire month of August off and that enabled me to start fig- figuring out, right, what are the systems and processes and resources that I need to set up now in order to thrive in this next chapter in my life? Stephanie, wow. <laughs> Stephanie, wow. Uh, um, I want to start with where you just stopped and that was when you took the leap and you're like, oh my goodness what am I going to do now? And I want to speak more to like the emotional and the mental side of it. How did you manage yourself through that? Because it's a lot, like your friend said, that monthly paycheck is very addictive, very addictive. Uh, It creates dependency, like emotionally, mentally. And then when you launch fully into entrepreneurship, it's like, ah, okay, wow, um, the 28th of the month doesn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to go and find the check. Okay. <laughs> and that can create a lot of anxiety, right? Um, how, did you, how did you sail through that season of taking the leap emotionally and mentally? Well, I wouldn't say I sailed, but I, I mean, the first thing to say is that I have mitigated at least the first year of my entrepreneurship journey by managing to secure a bit of grant funding which is supporting me um so that's you know that was a step that I took and again that's why I think it's so essential to you know everybody's story is different right and some people are able to you know they have the resources they can take the leap they can quit their job and just you know go straight in for others it's not the, the, the case and so think really carefully about you know how are you setting yourself up how are you mitigating risk um, and I, I would previ- previously have called myself an extremely risk averse person, but my business partner Jake says I can no longer call myself that given the, the, the incredible risks I've now subsequently taken. Um, so in terms of how I managed emotionally, um, and mentally in that period, I, I had, had had therapy in the past. And I've always been someone since then in particular that has paid particular attention to my emotional well-being. Um, you know, I check in with myself. I read a lot um, around the subject. And, and you know, when you have a really high pressure job, like, you know, being a lawyer, it's really essential to know where you are and know where your limits are, your boundaries. 
um, mentally. Uh, so um, there were some warning signs actually for me when I, it was probably after that first week of August and there were a, thing, a few things happening and I thought, I'm, something that's happening right now that's not okay and if I ignore this I'm going to be in a whole world of trouble so I reached out to a few really good friends I'm very very fortunate to have some incredible friendships I mean I I do invest a lot in nurturing my my relationships that's really important to me in life and that has served me really well um in my adult life so there are some people that are just always there for me and um who I was able to just check in with and say I'm feeling a bit like this at the moment and I'm a bit concerned I want to know what you think um I think I need to do x y and z but I I would like really welcome your input and you know my friends were just brilliant and um you know I recognized that I needed to get back into therapy Mm -hmm. um in order to support that transition and just to set me up for success in the next phase of my life because I think what I realized was that, you know, there was a, there was a, there was a, a bit of grief actually around, even though I was so ready for the next chapter of my life. And, you know, I, I had no regrets about not pursuing partnership um, and not, you know, taking the partnership offer. Um, and I, you know, it, it, I got to a stage in my life where I actually, I'm, I was thrilled with my legal career. It ended well, like I finished strong and, you know, it was, it was wonderful, but I was ready for the next thing. But, mm. but one of my friends said to me, you know, Steph, that's your, your community. And, you know, they've been that's your right. community. Exactly. And, 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 and losing that on a day-to-day basis, you know, of course it affected me. And stepping into the unknown, I didn't know what it was going to feel like being an entrepreneur. Mm. I didn't know what it was going to feel like in my body and in my mind. It was unknown. And I'm someone that is always very prepared and, you know, me guarding against various risks. And, um, you know, uh, so so I was really stepping into the unknown. Um, so I, I was able to reflect on that with some people. But then also I think... Um, you know, I had sort of cold feet towards the beginning. So mm. I suddenly thought, um, am I really the right person to be doing this? Maybe the I should imposter. just, yeah. yeah. And I honestly thought, you know what, I've built an incredible foundation and infrastructure for this um, emergent business and movement. Maybe I should hand it over to someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> and, um, and um, you know, and I think that's, you know been a recurrent theme in my journey is something it it has been around um owning my leadership identity Hmm. right I didn't it took me such a long time to see myself as a leader and in fact one of the things that uh, when I was doing some coaching and, and trying to think about my next steps in my career one of the things I thought I might end up doing was becoming a chief of staff because I was just so passionate about great leadership and I thought I want to find a leader that I really respect whose vision I'm really on board with and I just want to serve that vision really faithfully and it it took me a long time to realize that that leader was me and um, so yeah so I I that's been a long-standing theme in my own journey that you know no I, I am a leader it's just you know and actually reading Start With Why by Simon Sinek was a really uh yeah it is and it was really instrumental in my own journey about really understanding that leadership isn't about rank and you know um that I was able to be a leader (laughs) in my own right so um but but that has again that's something I've had to grow into it doesn't just happen Mm. overnight and um so that was another thing that was really important to get some support around growing into my leadership capacity and really shifting my mindset um, to, yeah, really owning that identity and owning um, responsibilities and, and the, the role of a leader and not just sort of being in denial and, and doing the work, um, but really fully embracing it and embracing it as me, not mm. through a, a, the lens of a big corporate or, a, you know, the identity of a firm, but really, thinking about, wow, this is my opportunity to just be fully me as a leader, pioneering this new movement and um, 
showing up, you know, as me authentically. And that's, that's actually, you know, it's a wonderful gift, but it's also terrifying <laughs> because it, it means that you, you know, there's an incredible amount of vulnerability oh um, goodness, in that, um, which I've been experiencing of late in even greater measure, um, which is why it's been really essential to, to just really share this journey authentically with my community and by community, I, you know, I mean my friends and family and um, other people that I'm connected with through my, my new work. So yeah, it really, it really um, takes a village. We say that a lot, but it genuinely does. And when I look back at my journey and I think how many people it took for me to get from where I was in my career to today, I mean, I've got a record of all the meetings that I've had and I've, I've had to top them all up and work out exactly how many meetings I had. But the kindness and generosity of st- sometimes strangers was phenomenal, you know. Wow. Stephanie, thank you for being so vulnerable, firstly. And there's been so much you've said from your, when you when you noticed the signs, like something was off, like you weren't your full 100% and you reached out to your friends and one of your friends said, kind of spotted that there was some level of grief and often in transition there is grief but we have to acknowledge it to heal through it and to move on to the next phase of life um but we don't talk about it we just talk about yeah i left my nine to five and i set up my business and we see the instagram the boss babe and whatnot but we don't talk about the emotional transition and how we we move through that then you said um Owning my leadership identity. This is so, 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 so important. And showing up authentically as me, not as the constraints of a corporate. Because that in itself actually is like a uniform. It's, um, it gives us boundaries and parameters to operate by. Um, but then sometimes when it's like, who is me in the context of this business and who am I permitted to be? And, and, and sometimes it's like, should I say that? Um, can I do that? But the truth of the matter is um, your tribe won't come to you if they don't know who you are. They won't recognize you as one of them. Right? Yeah. So you have to show up authentically and um, with vulnerability. I want to um, learn a little bit more about when you started your business, how do you, what work do you actually do? Like, you know, we talk about the good ancestors movement. What is it practically? Like, how do you help family? Like, how do you help your clients? Well, we're a consultancy um, and we help values led wealth holders um, steward their wealth in line with their values. And, and typically what we end up doing with them is we help them with their kind of broader wealth planning. So we help them produce quite countercultural uh, wealth plans, which are anchored in their values. But more specifically, mm. these wealth plans center redistribution rather than the traditional, traditional assumptions of preservation and accumulation. So people come to us typically feeling like they have too much money and that mm. they want to redistribute, but they're, they're unsure how to do that well. Um, and it's not just it, it's about enabling them to decenter their philanthropy. So to kind of put the philanthropy on pause for the for for a time and to really understand their broader economic participation. And by that, I mean, what do their practices around tax look like? Are they mm. paying their fair share or are they minimizing and avoiding? Um, are they accumulating more than they would like to accumulate having regard to the values that they espouse about um, wanting to live in a fair society. Um, And, uh, you know, are they investing in things that are harming the world? And perhaps, uh, you know, the classic conundrum is, you know, someone that's really passionate about the environment and um, they might even be funding uh, climate justice movements or environmental causes, but they're uh, vast uh, investment portfolios are, you know, in, invested in extractive fossil fuel industries and, and other ex- extractive and exploitative um, industries. So we help them um, achieve a sense of harmony in, in terms of integrating their values across their wealth stewardship. And that's typically su- supporting them um, in embedding their values into their wealth plans. And we help sort of coordinate 
other advisors, so it could be their lawyers, typically their financial planners, um, if they have one. Um, you know, we, t- we tend to work with other partners um, as well. Um, and we help them to coordinate a plan that effectively um, helps them to decrease their wealth over a period of time and um, agrees a, a set of principles and philosophies around what radical redistribution means to them. Um, and we define uh, radical redistribution as an organisation as redistribution, which is reparative and regenerative. Mm-hmm. So by reparative, we mean uh, helping a client to maybe look back and see how their wealth was originally created and helping them to assess the extent to which any harm was incurred by communities or people groups or you know individuals um, and helping them to kind of rectify that harm by redirecting capital back to that community or um, you know even even the planet it could be you know um, biodiversity and regenerative farming and that sort of thing um, and by regenerative we we want to support people you know we recognize that our the current economic framework that we live in is uh, fundamentally kind of extractive and exploitative and it's um, you know, we, we live within these uh, this paradigm of infinite growth, um, which mm-hmm. is fast becoming a delusion uh, because we live on a planet with finite resources. And so we want to move to a more regenerative economic model, which serves planetary thriving and societal well-being. Um, and so looking at ways that uh, use capital to serve ecological and social well-being and regenerating communities particularly again those communities that have been harmed by prevailing economic systems so that's what we do we get up to a lot of fun supporting people to think really outside the box and um help co-create new economic models and um and and kind of movement infrastructure so supporting folks that are on the, the front lines of amazing social and environmental movements um yeah so that's what we do remember when we spoke last time i said this is the lord's work (laughs) well it is the work of repair you know and redemption Mm. and that's um yeah wow keep going sorry no it's um that's uh yeah it's a it's a really key part you know, something that's really important to me in the work, it's about, it's the, the repair, you know, I think there's a verse that talks about being the repairer of broken walls and, and yeah. you know, uh-huh. um, and that's, that's really important because our, you know, what this work is fundamentally about, and I think it can be difficult for people to connect with this, particularly in the, the Western context where, you know, often culture is just not very good at engaging with, the idea of collective liberation, but hmm. you know something that will be more familiar to us being children of the diaspora, um, the African diaspora. But um, you know this work really is about recognizing that we all need co- you know this collective healing. We need to be reconciled to one another again, and to our planet, and to become good stewards of being this incredible planet that has been entrusted into our care also to repair our relationships to one another um and it sounds really far-fetched and removed from the economy but that you know I spend a lot of time trying to explain to people that fundamentally the economy is just about our relationships and about the way that we have agreed to um relate to one another and to share resources or not as the case may be so um repair is really a key theme in the work wow I have a lot of questions firstly <laughs> you said you have a business partner tell us more about your business partner and how you you guys grew envisioned this and came together yeah yeah so oh my business partner is a wonderful human being by the name of Jake Heyman and I met Jake probably about seven years ago um and he uh, his background is in philanthropy. So he started out his career working for um, someone in the US, in, in New York, um, who made a lot of money from his business. And, and Jake started to work with him kind of in-house on his philanthropy and um, kind of found himself in lots of crazy places, surrounded by amazing people doing things with money that are trying to change the world. 
And so Jake came back to London. Um, this must have been, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. He came back to London and set up um, probably what what is the most progressive philanthropic advisory firm in the UK. And um, and he spent his time advising some non- non-profits, but, but mainly philanthropists and trying to get them to uh, take a systems-based approach to solving the world's most challenging problems. And um, someone mentioned him to me when I was about kind of halfway through my career and um, told me to read an op- a, a letter that he'd written, um, a, a sort of a blog post, which was a very challenging piece on um, a kind of charitable foundations and some of their behaviours when it, it comes to kind of funding ideas and, and, and grantees. And I was just so impacted by his courage and bravery as I read his words. It was one of it's one of those moments I still remember where I was when I read it. I was on a bus on Putney High Street in London and um, I just felt compelled to reach out to him, even though I didn't you know, I had no contact um, that could introduce me. So I just thought I would chance it and send him an email. And he came straight back to me and I said, look, I, I would love to talk to you. Um, I'm really interested in philanthropy and I would you know, love to learn more about your journey. And he came straight back to me and said, sure, let's let's have a beer. And um, so we met a few weeks later and the rest is kind of history. He's just he just started to bring me in, into his world a bit more and, you know, would, would invite me to various dinners and we'd catch up every now and again, maybe bump into each other at different philanthropic events and then when I got the idea for the, you know, the first iteration of the Good Ancestor movement, and I was, I was asked, the question I was asking myself was, how can I use the concept of a family office to create um, or inspire an advisory ecosystem that will serve um, values-driven wealth holders who want to do good with their wealth and to integrate their wealth across their wealth stewardship, uh, their values um, into their wealth stewardship? Um, and... Um, I thought if there's one person that will give me an honest opinion about this, an honest and an informed opinion about this, it's Jake Heyman. And so I reached out to him and just kind of sketched out my idea. And he had he came back to me immediately and he said, I've been thinking about exactly the same thing um, because he'd been experiencing with his clients um you know, that they were actually, a lot of them were actually more keen to talk to him about what their broader wealth was doing and not just their philanthropy. Um, and he just, you know, offered to sort of support me to get get this thing up and up and running. And, um, you know, to this day, he's happy to do anything to, you know, help me bring this vision to life. Um, and so he now works with me a day a week um and has been incredibly supportive was is just just a fundamentally um generous human being in every sense of the word and um the thing I love about Jake is that you know he will never talk about allyship he will never refer to himself as Mm -hmm. an ally but he just he just embodies everything about you know everything there is about good allyship um, you know, without without referring to it openly, you know, he he's just generous. He's consistent. He constantly kind of forces me to center myself, which I find very uncomfortable, and decenters himself. And he um, is kind and he's supportive. And when I've had real moments of kind of crisis in my own leadership, he's always there to affirm me and to you know anticipate when I'm you know, I might be challenged. And he is just one of the best people I I know. And working with him is an absolute joy and a privilege. And, you know, I, I never dreamt that I'd be able to work with him. You know, I always admired and respected his courage and, um, you know, the things that he was doing for the world, which are fundamentally good, which come at a great cost to him at times, because he, you know, mm. he's very outspoken um, but he's prepared to bear that cost in pursuit of living in line with his values but also pursuing um, a greater future for us collectively so I feel incredibly privileged to be working with him. That's amazing amazing I want to take you back a little bit earlier on you were talking about how um, 
you used to well you you find that you need to allow your mind to breathe and your escapism so to speak or your the way to facilitate that was to pull away and go to the sea and now that you're in a different season in the business um how you how are you allowing your mind to breathe is that still serving you pulling away and going to the sea or are you using any other tips and um tools to do so because i'll just um for some context um very similar so i had an intuitive pull in 20 december 2019 that i needed to go away um for a retreat a solo retreat and just to recenter and the interesting thing is i went away for on a solo trip um in february and the second i got back was when all this covid-19 stuff happened <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, and, but that trip was so invaluable to me. Like it, I, it prepared me for what was coming. Um, it prepared me personally, spiritually, emotionally, professionally for the next two years ahead. Right. Um, but I wonder now that you're in a different phase in your business, how do you allow your mind to breathe? That is such a good question. And I guess you're mirroring my own words, um, that I said earlier, but, it's something that preoccupies me a lot because um, I think just by way of background, obviously training and practicing as a lawyer, it's a very high pressured environment. There's a lot of, um, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of time. And I, so I began to realize I needed this time to, to dream and to, you know, to awaken my imagination and to generate ideas. And, and also it wasn't really something that I was used to, making space for because you know from a young age I was always focused on the next thing I was always focused on getting the good grades and filling all my time with studying hard and then um you know I was all my Saturday jobs and you know it's always the next thing the next thing the next thing and there's not there wasn't that much room for play Mm. I think um and so yeah I, I guess I discovered this need to create space relatively late um or later on um in my career but um yeah now obviously you know that juggling the demands of a a a new business is not easy particularly when you're a very small team or you are the team (laughs) and um but but I gave very careful thought as to how I wanted to design my week um, or how I wanted to experience my working week um, before I actually launched the business. Mm. And for me personally, I, I know that I work best if I have, you know, or I, 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 my, my lifestyle serves me better if I have a dedicated space to recharge. So I made the decision that I only wanted to work four days a week. Um, and so I work Monday to Thursday and I have Fridays off in in, in rea- I mean, it happens for the, for the most part. I stick to it. It does mean that Monday to Thursday is 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 crazy, <laughs> and you know, very fast paced. Um, I wouldn't say it's high as high pressured as as my job in the law was. It's mm. pressure in a different way. Really? Mm-hmm. It's a different way. It's a different relationship. Um, and and you know, it's also a joy and a privilege to be just doing all this stuff that I feel so passionate about and my life feels so full and my soul feels so full you know I just feel so fully alive every day and and that is a gift in itself and that nourishes me Hmm. and yet I recognize it's very important for me to breathe and to rest and stop so I I have what I call kind of micro refreshment so while I'm not able necessarily to go away as frequently as I did before um I do block out weekends um, and, you know, I, I try to stick by uh, self-care Sunday, you know, and, and really take care of myself and rest and do things that bring me joy. But um, I love to spend um, my Fridays doing exercise and getting out in nature. So I, I live in quite a leafy part of London, like in South London, surrounded by trees and woodland. And um, I often take myself off to the woods just to be quiet and listen to the birds and and just just be around the trees because I just find it so nourishing um, and restorative um so if I can't get down to the coast I I just love to be in green spaces 
Um, you know, I try really hard to disconnect from technology, but it's it's often hard when, um, you know, I love music. So, mm. you know, I want to, you know, connect with um, my music or maybe listen to a podcast. And um, so trying to have boundaries with, with devices and technology, which often has things that you know offers things that can recharge us and um take us into new spaces mentally but we're, we're still connected with the device so, so I find that quite a difficult balance to strike mm. um but yeah and I, I've also kind of you know this is my first year so I have tried to block out chunks of holiday um as much as possible it is difficult but um it's you know, it's essential really to to the survival of the business and my own kind of emotional and mental well-being. So it's it's also accepting that um, I had a moment actually about a month ago when I reached out to a, um, a new friend um, who is an entrepreneur and because I had this moment of realisation that, I, you know, I said to her, I just realised that life is not going to slow down anytime soon um, because I'm starting to travel internationally for speaking engagements and, you know, I'm doing lots of client work, which is great. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, you're, you're running the business, you're dealing with the operations, you know, thinking about hiring and um, there's always meetings and business development and, you know, it's just a lot. And it, you know, if things go well, it's definitely not going to slow down. And I had this overwhelming sense of, oh, my goodness, what does this mean? And, you know, she came back to me and said, you know, that's right. You know, it's up to us to create the systems and processes that work best for us that are going to su- yeah. support us in this journey. And so that's what I'm focusing on. Um, so I am I do need to get better at escaping to the coast and just making it happen and I did make it happen a couple of weeks ago it was just a a spur of the moment decision I need to go and see the sea so I just went down for the day and and that was great but um I you know I need to make it a practice really of of seeking out that refreshment um wherever I can but you know it doesn't Uh always need mean that you need to run away you can Uh kind of escape in your own city um, or wherever you live and it's finding it's, it's not it's, it's trying not to overcomplicate it and finding you know there's that saying like done is better than perfect well actually yeah. as much as I would love to go to the coast right now <laughs> you know actually maybe all I have right now is to go down to a park and just close my eyes and just sit <laughs> thank you Stephanie you just delivered me from myself so <laughs> giving me so many tips thank you yes um yeah you might not be able to steal away to the coast but you can literally steal away to your local park and mm. just disengage and I love the idea of working four days a week um and your your awareness and consciousness of the fact that it's not going to get easier the <laughs> new level of growth demands more um more complexity to, to manage and so being super super conscious of what serves me and mm. how can I design that into my lifestyle and my my work lifestyle um, is really important this has been like amazing and I still have many questions but I'm just so conscious of your time so um how can people um learn more about your work or and also if you have any last comments closing words yeah, well, um, to find out more about my work, um, you can go to www.goodancestormovement.com. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, it's at Steph underscore Robbie is my Twitter handle. And I guess my parting gift would be um, really to just, this is an invitation. It's never too late to pursue purpose in your life and Mm. I guess what I can share is that you know I had an amazing career and all there's there is absolutely no doubt that everything all of my experiences to this have you know have brought me to this moment and played a part in the inception and development and you know ultimately the um you know bringing to life of of my business um but it ultimately it took for me to tap into my purpose and that it it didn't just land in my lap you know I had to really 
I remember describing it to someone I, I, by saying I aggressively pursued my purpose. And I really did for about three years because I was like, I, I, I know that I'm on this earth for something that's, you know, more than just the day to day of what I'm doing as a lawyer. I, I loved what I doing, what I was doing at the time. Um, you know, subsequently, I had a real shift in my uh, kind of politicization around wealth inequality, which was um, ended up being like out of alignment with with um what I was doing um mm. but but ultimately I would not be where I am today had I not invested the time and resources in seeking out my purpose my mm. unique purpose um and I it's the best investment I have made because I spend my days feeling sometimes frustrated sometimes scared sometimes anxious um, sometimes overwhelmed, but there is never any doubt in my mind that I am doing what I am called to do, what I was created to do. And that is such a gift. Jesus. Sorry, one bonus question. How did you discover said purpose? How did stuff get here? And then we, we say goodbye to the people. That feels existential. Um, I know, it seems like a big question. How was that last question, Mickey and Annie? But sorry. Yeah. <laughs> How did I? How, how did 30 I... second version, if Gosh. you have one. Um, oh, was oh, it a progressive thing? I, you know, it starts with a seed. I, I don't mm. know that because even though I am where mm. I am now and it makes so much sense to me, I feel like there's even more to come. And I feel like there's something about purpose that's infinite. And Girl. you just, and that's why you can find it at any time in your life, right? You, you just plant that seed. And, and you, you say yes to the journey. And that's what it yeah. is for me. You know, it's really interesting you say that because when you were talking about vision, it's birth, it's cultivated, it needs the right conditions. And I wrote it's progressive. It's mm. a progressive journey. It's, you don't, when you, when you say yes to it, it's not, you don't have the fullness of it. It just continuously evolves, right? Mm. And it just widens and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So yeah, it, I, I agree. It starts with a seed mm. for sure. For sure. Stephanie, this has been, I don't even know what to say. Like, mm. oh, refreshing, regenerative, and it's so himself. Um, just phenomenal. Thank you for bringing the whole of you to the space. Um, I'm much better for it. And I'm so sure the listeners are better for your journey and your story. Well, this was such a gift to me. And thank you for being such a generous listener. I really loved our conversation. Thank you. Wow. Stephanie Broby, the lady that is crowned with victory, but has given us all an affirmation, um, a word to keep us going along our journeys. Because I know for a fact, I'll speak for myself as an entrepreneur, as a disruptor, as a philanthropist, as a social change maker. It gets hard. (laughs) There are days where I'm just like, why? Why me? I just want to pack this all up and do something. Establish, follow the path of least resistance of what has been established and just follow the 12 steps to success. But I really took away so much from Stephanie um, and encouragement to just keep going and to remember working, you know, from the end in mind, which is I am crowned with victory. Therefore, if I am crowned with victory, I have all that it takes to overcome all these obstacles and challenges along my path of stepping into victory. So I loved, loved that. The other piece I loved was the talk on vision. So Steph said, vision is birth and cultivated. It requires the right conditions to cultivate. It takes time to grow into the vision. And she mentioned that she had to develop the character to carry the vision. I love this. And I feel like in our space as entrepreneurs, as investors, as change makers, there's not sufficient conversation on this. And this is the foundation of all that is seen that, the, that, that is apparent, that meets the eye, and that's the activity. But the spiritual element, the sense, strong sense of purpose and the strong sense of personal development of character is what underpins all that the eye meets. 
And if we don't take sufficient time to become great visionaries, we will build things that will not stand the test of time. So we have to become strong visionaries. We have to be patient, be patient with the development of our characters. And we have to understand that vision is, it's a progressive journey, right? Um, It's definitely a progressive journey. You start off seeing and your sight becomes clearer and the picture becomes fuller over time. And there's an element of the vision that will not come to you until you step out and start doing. So I love, 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 love that piece. And it just re-energized me, refreshed me, encouraged me at a point where, geez, I needed that. Thank you, Stephanie. Again, I say thank you for coming on to this podcast and bringing all of you, all of you. We are so, so, so blessed by it. And for all you listeners, thank you. Thank you so much for your feedback, for your comments, for your reviews, for sharing this. But please continue to leave us reviews, to continue to give us feedback. Um, We're growing and we're so much better for it. And continue to share this podcast with just one person that you know this would bless. Thank you so much. Take good care. God bless you.